Hi there, and welcome to Putting the Squid to Bed, a podcast about creative people and their craft. My name is Tim Lenko. I'm a writer and performer, and on this podcast, I interview creative people about why they create things and how they go about it. The show is named after an image that I have found so helpful. If you're anything like me, you know those moments when you've nearly finished a project, but then you find another touch you could add, another loose end to tie off, or another rough patch that needs ironing out. It's like trying to tuck a squid into bed. Just when you get two or three arms under the covers, another four or five have popped back out. Projects are rarely finished so much as they are surrendered. And that journey of discovery, creation, and surrender is what I ask my guests about. Hello, and welcome to episode seven of Putting the Squid to Bed. In case we haven't met, hi, my name is Tim. And today I get to talk to someone that has inspired me so much. Uh, Her collection of short stories is the last book that I just finished reading, and I'm still buzzing from it. Uh, My guest is a Canadian-born writer currently living in Seattle. She was born in Vancouver to immigrant parents from Hong Kong, and she studied creative writing at the University of British Columbia. She's now the author of two novels, a collection of poetry, and most recently, that short story collection, titled Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century. It won the Pacific Northwest Book Award and the Danuta Glead Literary Award and was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and the Ignite Awards and the Shirley Jackson Awards. And the list goes on and on with her other um, uh, books, uh, but we have to cut it off somewhere because her list of accolades is so, so long. Uh, Her writing is nimble and colorful And hearing her speak in person, which I got to at a festival um, this last summer, she's so down to earth and is such a bright light. And I can't wait to dig into it with her. So please, welcome into your ears, Kim Fu. Kim, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Where where are you calling in from? Um, I'm at home in Seattle. Okay, and how's the weather there? Extremely gloomy. Uh, you would not guess it was August. It's kind of uh, cold and November lighting already. Okay, yeah. Have you had unseasonably um, gloomy and rainy conditions this year? No, just today. It's actually been been a lovely summer, not too hot. The smoke hasn't been too bad here, uh, especially good. relative to the rest of the West Coast. Yeah, uh, I feel okay. like we've been really lucky overall. It's just a... It's just a strangely gloomy, atmospheric day today. Yeah, okay. Do you find that um, the weather like that affects your creative energy, the way that you feel about um, whatever you're doing? I know that I have some friends who, like, the sunshine really feeds their soul. and uh, But for others, like, like, I actually find when the rain hits, I feel like I'm in uh, England and I should put on my... Uh, uh, rubber boots and and go on an adventure and be inspired. But how do you feel when the weather turns? That's tricky because I feel like the sunshine is good for my mood in general. Uh, yep. And I do think that's, you know, that's just attached to your general productivity, I suppose. Uh, but when I look back on it, uh, I do think that some of my most sort of intense creative phases uh, where I was like most transported sort of into what I was working did happen in those like terrible, dark, cold months where you don't see the sun. You know, if you, again, if yeah. you live in Seattle or Vancouver, uh, there's like 
parts of the year you just don't see the sun for months on end you know it just kind of never rises it's just dark all the time uh and looking back I did do have a lot of like very meaningful like writing binges in those periods that's cool I'm curious for you what kind of an artistic season are you living right now are you writing are you resting are you promoting stuff where are you at Um, Right now I am writing. Uh, It feels like sort of finally is how I feel about it. Uh, I would say I've been in like a truly generative phase since about late June. Um, And I would say that for like maybe even a couple years before that, I was struggling a lot. Uh, I wasn't consciously resting, which maybe would have been smarter. Uh, I was more like trying to force myself to write and was kind of you know, coming up with scraps here and there and some like preliminary material or some sort of dead ends that weren't working. Uh, but just sort of really pulling my hair out, dragging myself nuts, uh, not not getting anywhere. And I think, you know, as you said, I feel like it's not, it, it wasn't the season. Um, and I just found that very hard to accept. And there was a lot else going on. You know, I, I did, that was when uh, Let's Know Monsters came out. And, you know, obviously there were a lot of commitments attached to that and it was very time consuming. Uh, but uh but yeah, I think if I had like consciously decided to rest, it would have gotten, it would have been a better couple of years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As a person who's, you know, people would look and appreciate and celebrate how much you've accomplished. And like, you probably have lots that you can, that you are sincerely and justifiably proud of having generated, having shared with the world. Um, have you been able to grow in and improve in your relationship with slow seasons. I'm sure that everybody can relate to the discouragement, but have you learned things that um, in relation to that, that uh, you wish you could tell a younger version of yourself? You know, in a way, I feel like the biggest challenge has been recapturing the way I experienced writing very early on when I was like a lot younger. Um, I would say actually the hardest like slow season for me was between my first novel and my second. Um, I think, you know, before you're, before I was ever published, I feel like I experienced writing as a thing I was in many ways just doing for myself, you know, And, and in a way that was like very freeing, you know, you're just kind of writing into a void, you, but you don't believe on some level that you'll ever get published or this will ever really be out in the world in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also feel like my process has always been very messy uh, and that never bothered me before. It, it, it always been like, a, you know, I, I won't write for months and then I'll write for, you know, 72 hours without sleeping and there's like dirty dishes piling up next to me kind of thing. Um, I, I always like, you know, worked in scraps and then you know, it would eventually come together. I just build off of one line. It was like, I was never like an outliner or a planner, you know, it was always just like very, very messy first drafts. Uh, and, and that was, that was fine. That was all like, just, just fun, you know, and it was, it was fun and it was healing and it was sort of important to me for, for lots of different reasons. Uh, but then I think after my first novel, I really wanted to be a different kind of writer all of a sudden, you know, I really wanted to be the kind of person that sits down at the same time every day, turns out a certain number of words, you know, has like those amazing outlines and timelines, like on a whiteboard, yeah. and, you know, uh, and, 
Yeah, and I fe- and then I also like I had a lot of trouble accepting the idea that there were going to be times I wasn't writing, and I, I think I'm still I'm still struggling with that, right? I'm yeah. still trying to find my way back to like remembering the pleasure of creation and the part that you can control. You know, you yeah. can control, you know, writing just like one sentence you really like, or just letting yourself play and explore, uh, and and you can't. There, there are lots of things about the process that you can't force uh, that for, for a long time I, I really wanted to. Um, one thing that, that took me a long time to figure out that helps a lot actually is um, now that writing has become like my livelihood in this way, uh, I need to do other forms of art that are zero stakes, <laughs> you know, the uh, way that writing used to be. Yeah. Um, just as like a... Like, like to do things that I will never be good at and I will never monetize right. um, to no just sort pressure. of, there's no, stakes. yeah, yeah, yeah. To just sort of keep me in that creative mindset or like remembering that that's what it's about. That's what it's for. That's what are those for you. What draws you in? So at different times, um, I did dance for a while, uh, because I, like I used to especially, I used to conceive of myself as like an extremely uncoordinated person. Like dance seems like the most antithetical thing I could do to, you know, like it seems like the really, really the thing I'm never going to be good at. Uh, and I feel like that was helpful. Um, I, you know, I took drawing classes. I had a phase where I made electronic music, you know, on a synth, you know, uh, right now I'm really into very recently. I'm really into crochet. You know, I'm making a lot of oh, cool. hats and blankets. <laughs> so, you know, I just, I just need to be doing something that is yeah. like, purely a creative pleasure again so that writing is doesn't have to be that too I guess like writing writing isn't everything to me it isn't the only thing that from which I'm hanging all of my self-worth and my sanity and everything else yeah that makes a lot of sense and then what has um uh when you talk about you know reconnecting with how you write it when you started out are you talking about like embracing the mess is that um, how you're going about reconnecting to, to what you originally loved in it to, to, to try and protect like, okay, we don't have to worry about this as much. Embracing the mess. Also, I think trying to keep the other voices out for now. Oh, um, yeah. Like, I, I think that that's one of the hardest transitions is, is now, you know, what, you know, like, like, I feel like I have like the idea now that it's like, oh, my agent is going to read this. An editor is going to read this. Uh, if it gets published, potentially everyone that I know could read this, right? It's like my cousin could read this. My mother could read this, you know, and I feel like that can be very paralyzing. Um, or if you, if you just start imagining bad faith reader responses, I feel like yeah. that can really drag you down. Um, and so going back to just like writing for yourself as sort of the only the only audience you really know and control, I guess. Uh, and also just, just trying to have fun. I I feel like that it, that, that's hard to get back to. There, there's an energy to the writing of like teenagers, especially that, that sometimes I'm, I'm jealous of, you know, like Mm. they're, you, you can tell they feel like they have an idea and the idea is so revelatory to them. You know, if I think it feels like no one else on earth has ever had this idea and that brings something to the writing that I feel like you can't, you can't fake. Um, and I, I'm just trying to get like, like the, the tiniest 
the tiniest bit of that back, I guess, of that feeling of, of that, that feeling of like really generating things that are new and feeling excited by it and want, and just like making a place I want to go to. Yeah. So for you, does that mean like shutting off the part of your brain that's checking the annals of history to see what, what, what's, what's like this or what is it like to, you know, shutting that off and just, uh, or does it involve positively focusing on something rather than turning something off? How do you go about approaching that kind of space and attitude? Um, well, okay. So, so one thing for me is I, I can't think about kind of grand thematic purpose of a project yeah. while I'm doing a first draft. And I know writers who, who can't do it unless they have some kind of sense of that, unless they, they feel like they know why they're doing this. They, you know, they can't put words down. Um, whereas I feel the opposite. I feel like that to me is like very stifling and sort of overwhelming and something I have to kind of let generate organically from the text. I feel like I have to work in kind of a moment to moment way. Like I really can only see an inch in front of my face. Uh, And I think the only driving principle I have is that it's not boring to me. Yeah. And you're an audience worth writing for. You're a person worth having a good time in that, in that process. Yeah. And I mean, I do think you have to think of all that stuff later. You know, I think, yeah thinking about your audience and being responsible to your audience and, you know, making sure all of your themes or things you intend is like very important down the road. Yeah. Um, but I've like come to learn that it, they can kill a first draft for me and I need to just put that aside for now. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So if you manage to protect, um, a, uh, you know, an unpressured first draft process that is just fun and exploratory, what is your next step? Do you then dig through it just by yourself? Or at what point do you bring other people in? So the really terrible answer is I have to start again. Like that's yeah. that's step two. Um, that's something I'm trying not to think about right now. Okay. <laughs> um, but that is but that is always true. <laughs> that is always true is like I generate a first draft that is kind of just a pile of stuff, you know, yeah. and then I need to do a draft two still by myself, um, that is an actual draft, you know, that has all that connective tissue that is even pointed linearly in the right direction from start to finish, uh, that has some awareness of what's going to happen in the early pages. Uh, I do need to do like a totally, like a draft two that's totally from scratch, um, Mm -hmm. for which the other text is just kind of present, um, that I can draw from it, but I'm, I'm functionally like to do it starting all over again, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to ignore that fact right now, but Absolutely. it is the truth. Uh, and then I think it's, and then I think there's usually still, still yet another phase that's still by myself, uh, where I would be doing more of a line edit, or I would be like reading what I wrote and building off of it and working more within the text. Um, and then I think it's at that point that I, you know, I, I bring on feedback sometimes in the past, uh, in earlier phases, I have like shared pieces with friends, uh, being mm-hmm. clear with them that I don't want detailed editorial feedback <laughs> at mm-hmm. this point. Like I kind of just need to not feel alone or to have like sort of very basic oh. encouragement, you know, a very simple, like thumbs up, keep going. Um, I really love, but that. yeah, that, but that's about it. And so it's like, 
I think of it as kind of a three draft process, even mm-hmm. though each of the three drafts is sort of depending on you how you count it. You know, each one is like another ten or million or whatever. What you're saying about sharing just a piece of it with someone so that you're not alone in it is actually so beautiful. How have you gone about picking and choosing the people that are safe? Ooh, um, way, way back when I did, uh, my MFA, uh, which was, uh, 2009, 2011, um, I felt like that was the most difficult and crucial thing kind of was identifying the right people, the people whose feedback made sense and were, you know, like, like people for whom the people that you should be listening to, I guess, um, and at the point that I finished that program, uh, I did have like a group of people. Um, and at, at one point, I think we had, we did this activity we called the one inch frame, um, which was we would send out in like an email thread, very, very short pieces of writing that were like from whatever we were working on actively. Like, I think it was usually just like a paragraph or two, um, or like the equivalent for a poet. So like a page or less, uh, or, you know, a couple stanzas. Um, the idea being, it was like, you know, a one inch drawing was kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would just be like, you know, words you were proud of from the thing you were actively working on where you did not want, you know, editorial feedback. You kind of just wanted other people to kind of admire it or, or, you know, to kind of give you reason to hone like that amount of words, you know, to, yeah. to share in the world, knowing other people are going to look at it. Um, and then, uh, you know, jumping all the way forward to when I was writing uh, lesser known monsters, one friend from that time, uh, uh, they were still reading the first, like the, they were the first reader for all of those stories, um, mm. as I was writing the collection. Uh, and again, it was, it was like, because now I have, you know, I have an agent, I have an editor, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm working with people in these relationships. Really what I wanted was someone just in this early phase with me. Um, and, you know, they, they were that person. They were the person who I like knew was excited about these stories who really like understood them, even when they were in their most like nascent form, like they were the furthest from being, you know, where I, where I hope they would be accessible to, to most people. Um, and yeah, and I feel like that is, that is like a grand challenge of a creative life kind of is like finding those people. Uh, and, you know, advice I very often give is if you find one of those people, like you hold on to them for life, you know, like through whatever, you know, through, through moves and through your own career changes and your life changes, whatever. It's like you hold on to those people because they're, they're very hard to find. Yeah. It's a treasure. And then when you're, um, sharing it with either them, those first readers or your editor or anyone else that you want, um, how do you go about asking, with specificity for the kind of feedback that you want. Is there a rubric of different types of feedback that you specifically ask for? Are there specific questions that you have found and honed to actually elicit helpful responses? Hmm. It's such a long time since I've done that. Oh, that's fair. (laughs) Um, Because, because yeah, because with, with like with friends, it is often now I just I just kind of need a thumbs up, some thumbs down yeah. kind of. Uh, and then in my professional relationship, it's it's like they give you the feedback they're going to give you. Um, yeah, gotcha. And 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 that's a very different relationship too because they're kind of putting their names on the line too. Yeah, you know, like I feel like they're very they're invested for a whole bunch of reasons um, in making it 
you know, what their vision for what is good as possible. And you, you know, you make sure your visions align. Um, there are lots of questions like I ask myself though, while I'm, mm. I'm editing that I do think are questions I developed from editing other people's work. Like yeah. it helped me to sort of turn that eye onto my own. Um, and, 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 you know, I said before that like my drag principle now is just like to not be boring. Um, and I do think there's something, I feel like when you were, when you're reading a draft, uh, you have an urge to slow down and speed up as you're reading or to like skip over sections or be like, I don't want to read that part right now. Um, and I think that impulse is kind of an important thing to note, like to note where you're bored when you're reading or where you want to skip or where, you know, where your attention is slowing or where your attention is speeding up because you're trying to blow through this. Um, just, I feel like that's like a gut emotional reaction, uh, that tells you a lot of information. Like if it, if you're doing that, like if you don't want to read it again, there's, it's probably boring. Like there's probably something wrong with it worth interrogating. Um, I have like some some more like specific shorthands too, though. Yeah. I, I think that uh, I've noticed long passage, at least in my own writing, um, long passages where a character is alone, mm. uh, you need to look at closely. Um, I feel like the writing has to be you have to hold that writing to a very high standard. Um, and then again, like specific to my writing, I really like scenes. Like I, I really like sort of being in the moment in scenes. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like a lot of other writers work very well with kind of a higher level, uh, more distant camera, I mm -hmm. guess. Like they can work really well expositionally or like in the summary of long stretches of time. Uh, but I don't feel like I work especially well that way. I feel like I feel like most excited about my writing when it's like really locked in the moment and in scene and in like second to second to second. Um, and I think that very often I will like find passages that need to be turned into scene, you know, that are written some mm -hmm. other way that need to be converted into a specific instance, a specific moment, uh, need to have their, you know, their time frames compressed in that way yeah well i will say yeah. the your um approach of like immersing the reader in a scene is one of the things that gripped me about lesser known monsters it was it was uh i was swallowed up in the best way possible that's so nice to hear so it's really effective what you're doing <laughs> that's great to hear thank you yeah was there a um a, were there any particular experiences with these short stories where you had to take a step back and say, all right, the, the, this long passage really needs to be revisited and reshaped in a way that uh, is more than I thought. Um, there's a, oh yeah. Like, <laughs> um, well, maybe every one of them. <laughs> A, a lot, a lot of them actually. Yeah. Um, especially the endings. Uh, I, yeah. I feel like that came up a lot um, with my editor, um, uh, Maisie Cochran at Tin House, who's who's just absolutely brilliant. Um, a number of the endings, I feel like it would feel like, you know, like in talking to her and sort of talking about how sort of she experienced the endings, I would realize there was like a whole scene missing or a whole beat or something, okay. you know, like where it's like the ending was correct, but the, the moment before the ending was incorrect. Um, oh, that's interesting. Or, 
on the other hand, so, like I, I, there, you know, um, there was also stories where I feel like the ending was just like beautiful words, <laughs> you know, like they yeah. were just sentences I liked that uh. did not quite like function the way they needed to for the story or they, or they weren't quite earned uh, as, as sentences uh, or like, that's not really what the story was about. Um, yeah. I feel like a lot of the stories is like the final two pages, like needed, yeah. needing finessing in a certain way. They needed to go a little further or pull back or there was like something big missing or, or it just needed to change altogether. Yeah. I'm really interested in the nuts and bolts of how those worked. Is there, um, I know I'm putting you on the spot with this, but is there an example of one of the endings where, um, and you know, we'll let people pause and skip over this uh, so that they can actually read the stories uh, if they want to not have any spoilers. But is there an example of one of those endings where the beat before the, the, the final bits needed to be added or changed or the sentences were just sentences you loved? I'd love to hear the nuts and bolts of one of those endings. So the doll, I remember, um, the story of the doll uh, ends with kind of a, a jump forward in time um, where it summarizes a, a series of experiences uh, sort of in the future relative to the story. Like the story takes place in a single time frame um, about children. And then there's like a series of kind of like high school age, college age, adult experiences kind of very, very quickly at the, at the end. Um, and that was always the ending. Uh, but there was a way it was written before that was even shorter. Like it's, it's quite short now. I feel like blowing through these experiences. Like, I feel like they each only get like a couple sentences, but there was a version of it where it was like, they were all jammed into like a couple sentences and it, I feel like it just, it just did not land at all. Um, but I, but you know, I felt so certain about this being the ending that that was hard for me to see until I was working with an editor and I could sort of experience the way they experienced the story. Um, where, and and I and uh, also in, in that version where it was like just a few sentences and we're just kind of like blowing through the rest of this character's life. Mm-hmm. Um, the other characters in the story were not present in his like Mm -hmm. future in high school and college and so forth. Um, Not even in his like memories and conceptions. And I feel like that was something I hadn't, I hadn't even noticed really that, that to the reader, it feels like all those other characters that hopefully you're invested in by that point have just kind of disappeared and fallen away. Mm. Um, And so now they're kind of woven in into what is still like a pretty, pretty like brisk ending. Uh, But now they're like woven in either like they're like literally present or they're just, in, in memories, they're just sort of affecting the way his, his adult perspective. Um, and I just, I just feel like it, even though it's like, in some ways it's substantively the same ending, it's written so differently. Like what was, you know, a a few sentences is now like a a few pages. Uh, and I feel like it, it it actually like lands the way it does. It did in my head in its earlier version. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Like, would it be a fair analogy to say it, you're taking a photograph of the exact same subject, but you're just framing it different, maybe pulling out so that there's more context and it can breathe more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. It did land, uh, very effectively for me. It was, it was, uh, creepy. Okay. So thinking about, um, theme as something that you, you, you know, talked about not wanting to dig into at all in your first drafts, something that you would examine after the fact. Did you have a thought of a broad overarching theme going into writing the collection or did you write the collection and then discover, 
here's the theme that apparently is emerging from my playing and discovering? Um, definitely the latter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wrote all these stories like fairly close together. Like I, I started writing the collection toward the end of 2017. And then the last story I wrote um, in like early fall of 2020. So it was like a less than three years uh, in which I wrote these stories. Yeah. And I sort of had faith that by doing it this way, as opposed to like, you know, drawing from, you know, all of my files and looking for stories that I still liked. Yeah. Um, I, I had faith that doing it this way would, would create some thematic cohesion. Like these, it would necessarily be about the things that interested me right now and yeah. kind of like my present worldview and the things that were haunting me and that I was thinking about. Um, but I think what those things were was not clear to me until like very, very late in the process. I think, I think I had just this vague, emotional sense that these mm. stories go together. These stories are supposed to talk to each other. These stories are supposed to be side by side in this way. Um, but, I, but I feel like, yeah, it was like very, very towards the end. Like when, mm. you know, I, I was looking at ordering with my editor and, and things like that, that I, that they did sort of feel like they were coalescing around, you know, I, I would say like particular anxieties I have about the future and then, sort of the nature of grief, I think, and how those are tied together. I feel like the way that I was experiencing grief and how I felt like the world demanded of us to experience or or tamp down or hide or blow past our grief uh, during the years I was writing this book. Yeah, that came through. The way that I would have articulated if, if um, you'd asked me to take a guess at the, the theme would be like, fear, particularly fear of mysterious things that are larger than us and don't, we can't necessarily see the edges of it. Um, and then, uh, the, the pain that that's in that. And then also the beauty that seems to be situated still within that whole, um, experience because they're just intermingled all together. Mm. I like that. Uh, yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you for writing it. <laughs> Did you find that this was super different from your other your other novels, your poetry, or did it feel very closely connected? What was your experience of those projects in relationship to each other? Um, it felt extremely different. Uh, you know, to me, to me right now, you know, standing what feels like sort of at a distance from all of them, I feel like... Legend of Monsters was the most fun to write, uh, oh. the most like sort of satisfying on a on a day to day basis. But if I if I actually like look at you know my journals from those years, uh, they're all filled with like angst and misery, you know, oh, like and yeah. like struggle and this sense of like oh, I'm never gonna get this done or this thing is not working. I don't you know like, they they all sound like that, but that's how it seems to me now. I, I think there is something. Uh, about a novel that I still struggle with. You know, at this point, I'm, I'm trying to write my, my third one of these. I still struggle with the sheer size of it, you yeah. know, the kind of unwieldiness of it in a way. Uh, and this feeling like, it, it feels like you're, you're trying to, well, okay, so I told you I just got into crochet, right? I, I feel yeah. like it's like you're trying to make a giant sweater where like, you know, if you pick, pick one thread, the whole thing unravels. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that is something 
that is something that's very challenging about a novel. Um, and I feel like short stories offered kind of a respite from that. Um, and I also feel like there was a intensity to a short story, like an intensity of its focus and a need to be really, really to write in like a very tight way, I guess that was, that was very exciting and very challenging and something that I enjoy a lot as a reader. Like I love reading short stories, you know, for this reason, yeah. uh, that, that made some, it really fun. Who are your, some, yeah. some of your favorite authors of short stories or your favorite short story collections? Um, I love Karen Russell. Uh, I love Kevin Brockmeyer. Uh, he, I think Kevin Brockmeyer is probably the writer I most want to be like, sort oh, of, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, we all have I love, heroes. I love Ted Chang, uh, as like a, yeah, his, his, his sort of his thought experience, the way his, his mind works is just incredible. Um, I just, this just recently read, uh, Life Ceremony by, uh, Siaka Murata in translation. Um, and that was, incredibly interesting incredibly fun uh i feel like that is also something i realize now i i kind of want to emulate i feel like she sort of pushes an idea really really far in a way that interests me um i also feel like she she's she's interested in disgust as like an emotion and a cultural phenomenon in a way i haven't feel like i've seen anyone else writing about it or addressing it in this way or like treating it with this kind of literary interest yeah um yeah, wow. Uh, there's a lot. I, I also just read uh, Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy for 2022, mm-hmm. and that that was really good. <laughs> that was a really good collection. Uh, a lot of incredible gems. Uh, there's there's one story about a, a pizza boy in space that was just, like, unbelievably, like, moving, <laughs> you know, which, which is like a, a wild thing to say, right? Like, like a story about a space piece of yeah. wood that just like totally broke my heart. Uh, and yeah. And so I, I do, I do love, I do love multi-author collections in that way too. I'm very into the best American. I used to read them every year. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, there's so much inspiration to be drawn there. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. That gives me a whole new uh, list of, of recommendations to, to read. Short stories are not my bread and butter. That's not what I usually go for. I love to sink deep into a novel. And yet, the short stories that I've been bumping into have been opening up this vista of like new perspectives on imagination and exploring the human spirit and what what the imagination is digging into. And so I'm I'm going to read up. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start looking at that list. Yeah. I'm glad you're a convert. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for making it easy. <laughs> so moving into um, like, or looking at this season that you're at, a very generative season, uh, digging into this unwieldy, massive project that is, uh, you know, it's, I hear like a tone of overwhelm in your voice. How are you protecting rhythms and space uh, for creativity, for, for, for that generative activity in your life? What are you doing to actually make it possible and set yourself up for artistic success in this phase? 
So something that was very, very helpful to me before the pandemic and that I've been trying to bring back into my life um, is writing with other people. Um, I used to have this group that met up. I actually just used to belong to several writing groups that did not, that weren't critique groups. We didn't even read each other's work. We just got together and, you know, maybe gossiped for 15 minutes and then wrote in silence. Um, I think at one point I was part of four groups like this. Um, And yeah, and it was, it was hugely, hugely helpful for me to just like, to be around other people who we had all decided, you know, we're, we're taking this seriously. This time is important to us. Um, This, you know, this next hour or two hours or whatever, you know, no one is doing anything else, you know, like you're, you're not looking at your phone, you're not answering emails, like all the other work, all the other deadlines, they don't matter for this time. Um, We're in this together. And yeah, and I found that so helpful, especially at the beginning of a news story or, or when I was feeling particularly stuck or burned out, like just, yeah, it would, it would help break me through. Absolutely. Um, Obviously that went away during the pandemic. Um, I tried like zoom groups for a while and it just, it wasn't the same at all for me. Somehow it just, it it just didn't do the same thing. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. And then, and then I feel like only very recently have been sort of starting to get back to it. Uh, you know, to this like writing with a writer friend in a cafe kind of thing. Um, and, and those are, those are the best days. And yeah, I feel like there's something just about the, the declaration of it, you know, of like, yeah, this matters. This is important. We're yeah, doing it's the this intentionality. Now. <laughs> Here's the setting aside of the time, and someone knows about yeah. it, and they know if I'm going to flake out or if I'm going to follow through. Yes. Yeah. Is it that accountability that, like, being witnessed, like share inviting someone in to to see your intentionality uh, that makes it so powerful? Is it um, is it the intentionality for yourself? Is it the crushing of distractions? Um, is it the feeding off of like? the mutual feeding off of each other's energy and momentum. Um, what is it about that that helps you the most? Three out of four of the things you just said. Like, um, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just, just I think I, I think having other people, you know, witness to my intentions as opposed to the intentions for myself is important. I think feeding off each other's energy is important. I also think even just the sense that this is, in fact, my work you know, and this is, this matters and is real, which I, you know, even though this, this is, this is book five for me, right? It still sort of feels like a self-indulgent hobby um, or like everything else is more important uh, or I'm, or it's not real or like the world is just waiting for me to, you know, get it, get a real job, do something useful. Right. Uh, and it's really hard to overcome that. And I feel like just, I, I sort of do need to be, you know, a lot of the people I do this with now, they're also professional writers, you know, like this is also yeah. their livelihood. This is, this is their career. Uh, and just, just, I feel like it makes me feel real sort of in a way mm-hmm. that is, yeah. yeah, I don't know that, that, that I guess that I, that I still need at this point, And I sort of imagine I always will. That makes a lot of sense. That sounds so much like, um, you know, some of the, the thinking around shame where shame is such an isolating thing. And if there's like vestiges of shame around this thing that doesn't feel legitimate, doesn't feel like a, um, a real and proper thing, connection to people and underscoring and reinforcing that sense of belonging helps bust the shame. And, mm-hmm. and so that you're free to just live vibrantly. So that makes a lot of sense that that resonates with what you're saying. 
I like that to live vibrantly. That's a yeah. That's, that's a good way to put it's it. It's what we all want. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, um, so thinking further down the, uh, the the train of of a project, if if we think way way down further, which I know is not the season you're in right now, but how do you relate to the notion of finishing a project and surrendering it to other people? How do you go about determining, all right, we're done? I think in in traditional publishing, I think that is easier. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's kind of imposed like, upon you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do think, you know, there there comes a point where if, if you want to adjust one comma, you're causing a lot of people a lot of grief. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually think I have an easier time with this than than a lot of writers oh, I know. Cool. I, I think I reach a point where it doesn't feel like I wrote it anymore. And the and the oh. space of where it first came to me feels like profoundly distant, like in the way that a dream does. Like yeah. this feels now like a dream I had several months ago that for some reason other people can access to. Yeah. Um, and then... And then once it's there and I've like let go of it and it's out in the world, I feel like I don't see it the way I saw it earlier where, you know, there's, there's tons of mistakes and there's all this like potential for change, you know, like there's all this like different ways it could be and things I wish I could fix. And like, it, instead I, I feel like to me, it, it sort of exists unto itself. Mm. And it's not that it's, it's perfect. It's that like, I can't get in it anymore. Um, yeah. And when I recognize flaws in it, it's the way I recognize flaws in like the art of someone else where they're not mine to fix and change anymore. They're just, they just are, yeah. you know? Um, they're just blemishes that are there and give it its specificity. And it's a thing to be witnessed. Yeah. Yeah. Or like it, it kind of belongs to everyone else now too. Yeah. You know, it belongs to their interpretations and their conversations and their experiences yeah. with it and how they're going to construct it in their mind. Um, I, I do know writers, you know, for whom their, their writing is haunting to them in yeah. a certain way, you know, like once it's published, they're like, Oh, you know, like every time I see it, it's like, there's all these things I wish I could change. Um, yeah. and, and yeah, and I, I, I actually don't, don't feel that way. I, I feel like a distance that hits us, hits sort of a, a crucial point and then only, only grows. Um, yeah. and in a way I feel like very, very lucky to have like a record of my own mind in this way, like that I could look at my old books and say like, oh, that's the writer I was then and the things that interested me then and the person I was then. And it would be impossible for me to write this book now. Like I, I don't, I, I could never access any of this um, now. And that to me is like kind of cool and kind of interesting as opposed to just like painful and cringy as I, and I, as yeah. I know it is for, for some people. Yeah, I so appreciate that perspective because it like looks back with gratitude on the places through which you've passed on your journey and and acknowledges, all right, th those were, were versions of myself um, or, or, or spots that I, you know, li liminal spaces I passed through in order to get to where I am, to become who I am. And rather than, you know, maligning them, wanting to erase them and change history, you, you can look back on it with gratitude for how it's contributed. Yeah, that's that's how I feel about it ultimately. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, bless you. I'm so glad that you don't, you're not haunted by the things that you have, uh, you've written and published. That's a good thing. 
so I, sorry, there was something on your mind there. Oh, I just, uh, <laughs> I, I was just talking to someone who used, who, who was a bookseller a long time ago. Like, uh, like I think like 10 years ago, they worked at a bookstore mm-hmm. and they went back and to celebrate them coming back, uh, the, the store had blown up all of their old shelf readers and like made a little like display out of like all the shelf readers, uh, readers they had written, which yeah. I was like, Oh my God, that's like such a wonderful, sweet idea. And she was like, sure. Which like, but it was like all the books I recommended when I was 22. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like, I showed up and I was like, Oh, we need to edit this a little bit. <laughs> like, this, is, <laughs> this is too embarrassing to confront. That makes sense. Oh yeah. It is interesting. But you know what? I think that if there is no measure, no measure of like little bits of regret, then there's no growth. If we don't look back yes. and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not there, then there was no growth. So that's a good place to be. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. Kim, I am so grateful for you. I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, before I, I let you go, I am curious. Uh, what's something that's giving you life these days? either a practice or a piece of content that you're digesting that's feeding your artistic soul? Um, I just started reading uh, Burnham Wood by Eleanor... Man, it's right here. (laughs) Uh, Burnham Wood by Eleanor uh, Catton? I don't know how you say her last name. I don't know. Um, A a friend of mine recommended this book to me, and she has impeccable taste. She's also a bookseller. Uh, She also works in a bookstore. Um, And... Yeah, and like I just started, but the the writing is so incredible. Um, and the, and something actually that I do when I write is I try to read a, like a little bit before I write mm. every time, mm-hmm. um, and especially like to read something that has like just great sentences, you know, to sort yes. of remember in my mind again like what a great sentence sounds like. Because sometimes you know you stare at the blank page and you're like, what even are words? What what am I doing? Yep. Um, and I feel like this is this is. So far, this is one of those books, you know, like the prose is just so impeccable that it's like, it's really invigorating. And I feel like it does like get the music right in my head uh, before I start working. I love that. That sounds so nourishing. I'm definitely going to add that to my to read list. I've given you a lot, I think. (laughs) You have, and it's probably going to take me uh, 10 years to actually catch up on it between that and all the other amazing recommendations that I've received, but I'm here for it. Uh, okay, Kim, thank you so very much for being here today. This was a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad. I was glad to be here. Yeah. And all of you, thank you for listening. Uh, if you like this conversation, please share it with someone who you might also enjoy it and uh, leave us a rating wherever you're listening. It helps people like you stumble on something new. You can find me on Instagram at Timothy Lenko and at Timothy Lenko Music. Kim, where can people find you and follow your work? Um, I am not on social media, uh, but my website is uh, kim-foo.com. Excellent. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Join me again in two weeks when I'll talk with another artist about their craft. Until then, live your life like art that is never finished. Bye. Bye.